0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, and welcome to New Books in Japanese Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Takeshi Morisato. Today, I'll be talking to Rebecca Kobet, who is the author of Cultivating Femininity, Woman and Tea Culture in Edo and Mage, Japan. A book that was published in 2018 by the University of Hawaii Press. Hello, Rebecca.
1: Hi, Takeshi.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Um, We are very much excited to talk to you about your book on the history of women and tea culture between the early modern and the 19th century in Japan. Um, Of course, when we talk about women and chanoyu in the history of Japan, I think there are so much to to be talked about in relation to early modern, uh, modern historical period, but also contemporary Japanese society. Um, I also feel that uh, your book has successfully undone a kind of conceptual entanglements over over these two terms, especially when the tea culture is discussed in reference to the intellectual and cultural history of Japan. But before getting into the core of your book, I would like to start with the questions about you. Uh, Could you introduce yourself by telling us about your career, research, and how you are involved with this field of Japanese studies?
1: Sure, I'd be happy to, and thank you again for having me. I am currently work at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles, where I'm the Japanese Studies Librarian, and I have a few other roles as well within USC Libraries, and I'm affiliated with the Shinzo Ito Center for Japanese Religions and Culture at USC. And I, my career in Japanese Studies um, in terms of education, began at the University of Sydney in Australia. So that's where I'm from and um, did my education. I'd been studying Japanese language in high school in Australia from um, eighth grade, which you know would be middle school in some countries, depending where you are, and had done a, like a two week trip to Japan when I was 15 with my school and my father traveled to Japan regularly for business. So it was always a country that interested me. And then I did one year Rotary Exchange in Aomori in Northern Japan when I had finished when I was 17, um, so a year of high school there. Uh, and so that was what motivated me to, to major in Asian studies and particularly focus on Japanese studies in my undergraduate degree, and then go on to a PhD in that field. And uh, after graduating with my PhD, I you know, did the adjuncting work teaching Asian history and Australian history, and then I also worked for a couple of years at the National Library and National Archives of Australia, uh, and then re-entered Japanese studies with a postdoctoral fellowship at Stanford University, where I met the Japanese studies librarian there and became interested in kind of combining my two areas of interest in working in libraries and working in Japanese studies. Um, and that was how I came to to my job at, um, that I currently have at, at USC.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I have a quick question about your stay in Aomori prefecture. Did you stay on the side of a uh, Nambu region or Tsugaru? Tsugaru yeah, region? I
1: in uh, Tsugaru, So, um, suffice it to say that, uh, you know, Four years of high school textbook Japanese did not serve me very well when I got to the region where it's, it's really heavy, Tsunariben, and uh, and then when I returned to Australia after a year living there and started Japanese at university, and they had a special, um, like, a speaking class for those of us who had lived in Japan already. and. Uh, the teacher who was, um, you know, I think originally from Tokyo just kind of looked at me horrified and said, we have to fix your accent immediately. (laughs)
0: Somehow you sound more French than Japanese with the tsugaru-ben and it has a specific sound. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, so I would like to dig into this book, um, having talked about the tsugaru-ben of your Japanese, um, could you tell us the origin of this book project first of all, and how did you come to be? Um, you know, also your motivation. And I, I just briefly heard before the interview that this book is a, in fact available for free uh, in open access uh, ebook. And can you tell us a little bit more more about this sort of a uh, origin, motivation, but also how it became uh, a free book for us?
1: Sure. So actually, it does go back to Almoy. Uh, and living in the um, Kuroishi was the town that I lived in, which is on the Tsungaru side. And uh, I started studying tea there as um, an exchange student. So my host family was at a Sotozen temple. So my host father was the head priest and his older sister is a tea teacher and lived in the town as well. So they asked me, I think, pretty early on within the first couple of weeks of me living there, if I wanted to go to, you know, a, a tea ceremony class. And I thought, why not? I was there for this year of cultural exchange, right? And I I really enjoyed it. And I kept going back every week and studied with her once a week. And it was something I reflected on later was that I realized, like, it was a very typical tea class in Japan in the sense that the teacher was an, an older woman who had whose mother had been a tea teacher as well, and she'd learned from her, and also it was this family that was, uh, you know, connected with Soto Zen. So the father, the mother had been a tea teacher, the father had, had been a head priest of a temple, and then she was a tea teacher, her brother, my host father, was the priest of the temple. And all of the other women in the class were older Japanese women. and. There was a couple of younger women in the class as well including my host sister who was only there for the first few months of the classes that I was taking and then stopped classes because she was getting married. And I didn't realize it at the time but as I, you know, became more interested in researching women and Japanese tea culture academically, this is this pattern was what was described that young women in Japan like in contemporary Japan it's young women doing it as a form of bridal training, which would be my host, sister, and then older women coming back to it um, later in life, you know after the the children have grown up when they have more free time, and that it's a really female dominated activity, and that most of it is taught by these female teachers at this kind of local level. And so I don't think I you know I wasn't like intellectually aware of all of that at the time. As a 17-year-old, you know, just kind of entering this world, but I think that it, um, reflecting on it later, I realized it was actually quite a, um, like, a, a strong, ex- I guess, a good experience for me because it gave me that context in which to understand how tea culture works in contemporary Japan. Yeah, and it's almost, so-
0: it's almost like the typical textbook case of what would you see as the experience of tea ceremony? Especially for me, when I grew up, it was exactly the same narrative that I saw in my grandmother and grandmother's grandmother. And uh, my mother's generation is a little bit, I, I'm not entirely sure because they're from the city, uh, you know, Osaka and and Tokyo. But it, it, it's almost like the textbook case study. Um, this episode is almost like a typical, the you know, cultivation of femininity, femininity that you're focusing on in the book, it just seems like your first personal encounter was just that, right?
1: Exactly. So I guess I couldn't have scripted it better if I'd if I wanted to, but it all kind of happened, you know, by by, by accident or happenstance, I suppose. Um, and so then for me, like, as I explained, you know, I was going through university, majoring in Asian studies and, and Japanese history and history was always my passion and I wanted to be a historian and um, talking with my professor in Japanese history classes who then became my PhD advisor Elise Tipton I was always struck by as a student of tea because I, I kept studying in a tea school in Sydney once I returned from the exchange and my teacher there would encourage me to read books on the history of tea, and they're available you know, both in English and Japanese, and they tend to be published by the Urasenke School of Tea, which is the largest tea school in Japan today, and that's the one that I was studying in, and it's the largest school outside of Japan as well. They're the ones who really, um, in the post-war period, really expanded internationally. And what I was reading was you know, what I call in the book the standard narrative of tea history. So essentially, women are not really talked about. If they are, right. if women didn't study tea until the Meiji period when the then head of the tea school allowed them to study tea and the doors of tea were opened to women. And then women started studying. And then that paragraph ends and they go back to everything else. And so for me, it was like trying to connect this with my experience of tea in Japan, which was, as I said, very female dominated. And as a student at university, reading women's history and studying women's history and reading like feminist theory and trying to figure out like, how do I put all of this together? You know, so as with many first books, this book came out of the research for my PhD dissertation. And my questions I was really asking were, you know, what, um, what was the place of women in tea historically? What, what really happened in the Meiji period? And in doing that research, including I spent a year as a Japan Foundation Fellow at Nichibunken, the International Research Centre for Japanese Studies in Kyoto, and that was really pivotal because my main focus was going to be on the Meiji period and it was kind of doing background research that I started finding more and more sources from the Edo period and thinking, like, hang on, there's a different story here. And then while I was at Nichibunken talking to a lot of, other like visiting scholars and researchers who were there was really helpful and people pointing me in the direction of different sources from their fields that were often outside of tea history. Um, So like the guides that I talk about in um, later in the book, the edification guides and the Sugoroku and things like that. And um, then it was while I was a postdoctoral fellow at Stanford that I had the time really to start thinking about writing a book. And as I said, using the research from my PhD and the motivation for me was really about wanting to tell this story of women in tea culture historically that had been overlooked and ignored. And, you know, I feel really strongly that like 90% of tea practitioners in, especially in Japan today and also outside Japan are women. And it's thought of as like a women's activity but in a way that it's therefore put down and yet at the head of the tea schools it's still male dominated and the headship is passed down in a patrilineal line and the senior ranks of teachers in Kyoto are, are, are men and women can only advance so far and so I really felt like for for the contemporary tea practitioner audience of women I wanted to write a book that talked about the history of women's participation and that this idea that women didn't start studying until the Meiji period, until they were quote-unquote allowed to, uh, was inaccurate. And then also for the academic audience to write a book about tea history that really, again, told a different story and that was really critically engaging um, because, unfortunately, I think in academic scholarship, tea, Japanese tea culture is often overlooked. It's dismissed as kind of, well, it's a cultural activity, it's a hobby, it's not really a, a subject to serious scholarly inquiry. I think that's definitely changed in recent years. Um, Morgan Batelka, for example, has done great work, Kristen Surak, and I wanted to contribute to that as well Um, because I did have people you know question many times my topic and I had Japanese scholars telling me you don't have a topic there's nothing to be said on that subject I had uh, western scholars telling me like why do you want to write about tea and something so trivial why don't you write about something more serious Uh, those Mm -hmm. kinds of things Um, and then the uh, the question about the how the the open access free ebook edition came about was through an open access agreement with the publisher, University of Hawaii Press, and uh, Knowledge Unlatched is the, what the program's called. So if people go on Amazon or any other platform they want to use to get ebooks, you'll see that it's uh, it's available for free. And that's yeah, through this open access agreement the publisher created. And for me that's really exciting because I think academic books can be quite expensive. And I did want people in the T community to be able to access my scholarship. And a lot of them have told me that they've been able to, um, thanks to the free ebook. And I think it also makes it great for assigning to students and, and so on. So I was really happy to be part of that.
0: Yeah. I mean, this book itself has the beautiful pictures in the middle of the book and there's certain illustrations as well. And, uh, I mean, just those parts alone, it would be uh, great to be able to actually see on a screen. And if it's free and it's actually legal, <laughs> which is happens I mean, pretty rare in academic context. So I, I highly encourage our listeners to actually go and check out and see uh, this untold story of um, um, femininity in the history of tea. But you're right that it just seems this project... Uh, tackles this gap in the narrative in the context of Japanese history, e- even in Japanese academia or Japanese cultural context. And then you have to handle, um, what is it, uh, North American, or I guess Anglo-European uh, academic context. Where can we um, actually deal with this culture of tea in the context of Japanese studies? Yeah. Um, so I think it's it's entering... A little bit of methodological background of your book in, in this regard, because you are a trained historian. And this book starts with a really fascinating, I mean, the, one of the most important probably distinction between uh, compensatory and contributory scholarship that you quoted from Gilda Lerner and her feminist historiography. And it was it was a very inspiring in, in, in a way that you are saying that the scholarship. Uh, of this kind of, you know the showing the lacking narrative of um, woman in the history of tea is not to just you know compensate this male dominant narrative of the history of tea but just to transform the ways in which we can actually look at the history of tea right now I have two questions um first of all i i'm going to assume that your book is actually achieving that contributory scholarship but how do you envision this book to be doing uh, in in your eyes um also in any i'm pretty sure any contributory scholarship in general faces challenges and can you share a little bit more of the challenges perhaps in terms of like collecting materials or um you know mythological concerns with 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 your uh, dissertation defense or any, anything that you can share with the listeners
1: sure uh i definitely hope that it It contributes and isn't just compensatory. Uh, I'll leave that up to the readers to decide. Um, But that was definitely my aim and and the reviews and feedback I've had uh, would indicate that it's done that. But I think what's important for me is that the the distinction between compensatory and contributory is that often what happens, and this is 100% being the case in, in writings on tea history, is that when people say okay, so you have this, like, general argument, women didn't do tea in this time period, so in the Edo period in this case, then any time that evidence is brought up to the contrary, people say, oh, but that's just an example. That's, like, one woman. And there's, I talk about it in in the introduction, there was a Japanese book published, uh, a number of, I think it was in the 1980s, that was about women and tea historically, and it was just each chapter focused on, like, a particular woman. And that is... Me, an example of compensatory scholarship because it's just saying, like, there were these individual named women, and we can say that they did tea, but it doesn't change the master narrative. They're just held up as these like exceptions to the norm, and nothing else about the narrative changes. And it's sort of like, oh, they were able to study tea because, in the case of all of them, they were like elite women, you know, they're women of the imperial household, for example. And I think the contributory scholarship is saying enough with the exceptions to the norm, at some point when you have enough evidence of women studying tea, in my case, looking at texts encouraging women to study tea, all of this builds a pattern. And you can see that actually there is there was a discourse about women's tea practice that existed because women were practicing tea. And once we acknowledge that, how does it then change our overall understanding of tea history. So some of the things I argue is, for example, um, like as a, a specific example would be in the section I discuss, where I discuss inausuke and his household. He's obviously a very famous figure in Japanese history. And the women of his household studied tea. And there's records of this. There's writings by him about this, records of the gatherings that they attended as uh, guests and as, that they attended as hosts. These include his daughter, other women of his family, and then women of the household, so like female attendants. And scholars of E. Nalske and his tea philosophy and tea practice have said this so, shows how exceptional he was, that women in his family and household studied tea. But what I argue is it doesn't show how exceptional he was What's exceptional is because he's in Aske, we have all the records. And actually, the pattern that we see in these records of the women's tea practice in his household are very similar to everything else I found and so suggest that this is just a really good example of a larger pattern. It's not an evidence of, like, how exceptional he was. Um, and so... I guess that's an example of the contributory scholarship but then like larger than that it's saying okay well if we know that all of these in the case of the edification guides that I discussed if we know that all of these general guides on femininity and kind of encouraging women to take up different cultural pursuits and and practices and that many of those had sections on tea culture and that these were not written by the tea schools these were not promoting one tea school over another, that actually the dissemination of information about tea practice was happening outside of the control of the tea schools, and this is a really good example of that, and again has not been discussed in tea history or scholarship on tea history before, that actually the the popularisation of tea culture was happening on a much wider scale and like outside of the, the formal control of the tea schools And so I think what I would say there is that it's contributory in the sense that once you include women in the picture, you actually learn something new. So it's not just like adding women to the story for the sake of adding women. Once you actually look and change your um, field of view, you get an entirely different picture of the whole field. And that's, you know, that's like pretty much standard women's history 101 stuff. Like it's not, it's not historians of women don't already know, but unfortunately we often have to keep pushing, bringing that case forward. Um, and Japanese tea history is definitely an example where it's really been a male dominated field in terms of what's written about and in terms of who's written the history it's been very dominated and controlled by the tea schools and the scholarship that they support and promote and the version of history that they want told. And so um, it's been like, in terms of challenges, that was really a challenge for me. Like I'm a student in the Urasenke School of T, yet I was writing things that went against what they- uh, <laughs> tradition.
0: Yeah. And yeah. tradition. And their tradition and their kind
1: of view. And so I often, you know, felt a little bit unsure uncomfortable if i could do that but i felt as a scholar it was really important and i had to like separate me the scholar from me the tea student because you know japanese tea culture is a traditional cultural practice in the sense that you're not supposed to question your teacher like your teacher tells you you know that needs to be a millimeter over to the right or that needs to be one tatami line higher up and you you do it you don't say why um, and what I was, what I've done is really question, you know, the, the narrative that's coming out from the T schools. And I did get pushback from that early on from some people. Like I said, in Japan, I had scholars telling me, like, you have no topic, there is nothing to be written on that. I I tried doing research at the Konichian Library. So Konichian is the headquarters of the Urasenke school. And they were just like really unhelpful <laughs> and, and, and so but for me it worked out great because i turned my attention to non official sources non t school sources and i found you know a, a wealth of information out there
0: yeah so i have a couple of questions uh, related to what you're expanding right now and maybe the first question would be um the, the sort of, you know, the, this picture of the male-dominant Yamato system in the history of Chado and, you know, this limitation of no- knowledge transmissions and you try to transmit the knowledge of how to practice tea from one generation to another through male successors, right? Um, so I guess as I, I'm going to represent the people who do not practice tea uh, Sado uh, or t- uh, tea ceremony uh, in that what's the what's the point of um, Yemosa's system in the sense of the, what what do they achieve from limiting knowledge transmission first of all I- I- is there some kind of power structure that can they can maintain um, you know in, in general we're just curious about why is it so male dominant to begin with and um, you know because my personal experience is much more like as you said, it's a feminine uh, woman's practice. Is usually the tea ceremony that I grew up in in contemporary Japanese society. Um, so I just I just want to ask the, this question of why um, you know male dominant Yamato system. What's what's the functioning of that uh, in, yeah, in I, the history I think of tea? Um- and-
1: so I do talk in, I'm trying to remember now, I think it was chapter two, I talk about the EM system or I, mm-hmm. it might be chapter yeah. one. I, I should right. remember what my table I mean, maybe,
0: maybe I can add one thing that I, I was very curious about. There's one section in your book that you talked about, but even if you look at the structure of the ways in which the T uh, instruments are placed, some of the instruments are definitely come from women. Um, I don't remember the exact instruments in the t setting but some of the t setting is set up in such a way that it's obvious if you look at this this doesn't come from uh you know regular daily life of a male members of society in japan
1: yeah well, it, like, yeah yeah no i i think uh, i know what you're talking about there so it, definitely in chapter one i talk about like the development of the e system I would also refer people to Kristen Surak's book, Making Tea, Making Japan. She talks about the Iemoto system in there as well and connection to contemporary um, Japanese society also as as well as historically. And I think the purpose of limiting knowledge transmission through this Iemoto system, where you have like a pyramid like structure with the the Iemoto, the head at the top, and then the information is um, controlled like in terms of its dissemination through through a licensing system and people being registered with with teachers and that's what you know was developed in the 17th 18th centuries and it's what still exists today and the point really is to like limit intentionally knowledge and who has access to it and it's not exclusive to to tea you see it in other cultural practices as well and it is about, it's exactly what you said, it's about maintaining power. It's about maintaining like exclusivity and access to knowledge. And it is also about making sure that people are, I'm trying to think of the right word to use here, like sort of qualified, if you like, to receive the knowledge. So for example, you know, there are like the lowest level tea practices, the be- the beginning level procedures, there are textbooks about those now with photographs and step-by-step instructions. But once you get to the intermediate level and beyond, there's no textbooks, there's no written instructions, it's all oral transmission from your teacher and you have to be licensed to receive that transmission. And it doesn't, it's not a license that's like, you're now, you've now mastered these these other procedures at the lower level because we don't ever say that we've mastered anything in tea practice. You're always, it's a, it's a process of constantly learning, but you've like achieved sig- sufficient proficiency that you're now able to go on to the next level. And those licenses come from the Iemoto. So you apply through your teacher and your local branch, and then everything gets sent to the headquarters in Kyoto, and you receive then a license to study the next level of procedures. Um, and for example, at the highest level, the okuden or like secret or hidden teachings like students who have not received the licenses to study those procedures should not be in the room and should not see those procedures. So it's very like exclusive in that sense, right? Um, I think also though, we have to acknowledge like it was historically and is today about money as well because people are paying for access to knowledge. So if you just let that knowledge like be out there publicly available, there's less of a reason to pay for the access uh, and then it is about power structures and the you know the significant power held by the families that control each of the tea schools so you know you have um, and the various schools of tea not and though I just named the Sen schools of tea there's others as well and people who want to teach have to be licensed by the school to teach as well and so yeah it's 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 jobs for people it's their livelihoods um, so money is part of it as well And then as to why it's still male dominated I mean I think that's more of a um, I think that's related to like I mean Japanese society in general the the you know, if you look at the imperial family, like it's no, no different, right? Um, and and the questions of whether you know a woman could ever become um, head of the imperial family and and an emperor uh, in contemporary Japan, we know they did historically, but um, so you know there's been similar issues with the tea schools with with those same um, issues of like a lack of male heirs, for example, uh, that the imperial family has been facing and the question you asked about the the tea utensils and and women's um kind of involvement in potentially like creating them um so the the main one that i talk about in the book is the uh, daisu which is a type of utensil stand so it's like a it's an object that you place utensils on and there's all different kinds of these daisu and they have different uses and different like handling depending on them, but the, the basic point of it is that it's a place on which to put objects like the mizusashi, which is the cold water container, like usually like a ceramic jar that cold water is in. Um, the tea container, the natsume, can be placed on there. Some other utensils can also be placed on daisu. And that's you're putting them on the stand instead of directly on the tatami. And men use daisu as well historically and we believe that the earliest tea procedures everything was done on a daisu and later things kind of came down off the stand onto the tatami but so and i don't want to claim too much because i think the evidence isn't there to support any like really bold statements about this but i there was a sense i got from various texts that i looked at that uh, a woman, Woman's Handbook is one of them, Toji no Tamoto, that I discuss in Chapter 2. There was a sense from those that book, the edification guides, other things that I looked at, that using these stands, these utensil stands was being emphasised for women because then you have the utensils already set up in the tea room ahead of time. Otherwise, if they're placed directly on the tatami, then you would usually carry in, like, this cold water jar, this mizusashi, and place it down once the guests are already seated, and, like, part of the tea procedure, the temae, would be bringing in those utensils. And the suggestion in these texts is that it's, like, more elegant for women to have them on the stand already, or I guess, like, reversing that, it, it may not be so elegant for women to carry in and sit down and then stand up at the end with like heavy objects, like large ceramic jars filled with water. And it was I, I suppose the reason why I didn't push it too far in the book is because it was it was subtle, but like consistently coming up in texts that I looked at. And it's not to say that like men didn't use the utensil stands either or that they were specifically associated with women, but there seemed to be a like a a constant thread of like encouraging women to use them for this reason to do with it would be more like elegant or less awkward um and that was something i found interesting was that they were often kind of talking about like little like minor accommodations that women could make that would be uh yeah more feminine more genteel more elegant um yeah yeah right i think that yeah yeah,
0: I can I can see that. That I think that's just incredible. Uh, section where it feels a space of tea room is no longer just male dominant. There's there's a certain sensitivity to how things should be done, both for men and, uh, and especially for women, with this presence of Misashi or instrument. And it, it was fascinating, sort of like the change of the air, almost like there's a, there's a kind of different description of the situation. Uh, in a teen room, and since you mentioned this term, uh, genteel femininity, which I think is the key concept throughout the book, and you're highlighting how the different manifestations of the genteel femininity in the history of uh, Japan from early modern to Meiji period. Um, but I feel uh, so correct me if, if I were wrong. If I'm wrong, and also tell me more about these distinctions. So. Gentle femininity in early modern looks much more limited to elite class, um, so it's a very uh, limited, a few and rare in upper strata of the society could you know privately practice it. But then gentle femininity in eighteenth and nineteenth century it becomes suddenly accessible to really large group of women. So my questions to you is like: Do you think the concept of genteel femininity is consistently sort of preserved and practiced throughout these different historical periods, or uh, do you see some evidence of differences of the way they perceive genteel femininity?
1: I think definitely there's differences in the way it's perceived. Uh, a good example of that would be the changes that occur from Edo to Meiji, where in the Meiji period like a, a sense of national identity is really added to it. So it becomes like a, a Japanese genteel femininity and, and you don't have that, that Japanese-ness uh, embedded in it in the Edo period. And then as you said, there's a, in the Edo period, what I identify is, is a, uh, an expansion of genteel femininity from, as you said, the elite to like commoners, Women commoners being able to access this ideal of genteel femininity as well through um, things like tea culture, and that the way it was it became more accessible was through the publishing boom. And of course, like um, you know, uh, Beth Berry's book *Japan in Print* is a really you know, great text to to look at this more broadly. And in my book, I just focus on the publishing boom as it applied to books about tea culture and then these edification guides that i mentioned weren't specifically about tea culture they just had sections on on tea culture within them and then other sections on like the koto or the shamisen or um like tables of elegant words for everyday things so you know if you want to sound like a cultured genteel lady you can use these words to refer to everyday things and you will sound more elegant and cultured or Um, If you study tea, it will teach you how to stand up and enter a room elegantly. It will teach you how to open and close a shorty sliding door elegantly. This is like the exact things that these books were telling women and giving women access to this kind of information that previously was more exclusive and harder to access. And I don't want to go so far as to say that that totally transgressed all kind of status boundaries or, you know, on the one hand it's like reaffirming of genteel femininity and its elite exclusiveness, but on the other hand, it's also like making it more accessible. And I think we see that, I think I describe in the book as like a cascading process that we see that there's, you know, tea culture initially the preserve of like a certain group of men and then male commoners becoming more, it's becoming more accessible to male commoners, and we have the same thing happen with like elite women having access to it, and then commoner women, and commoner women's access to tea culture comes later than commoner men, uh, and in that sense it's kind of a cascading process as well, and and again this isn't exclusive to tea culture, we see it across other, you know, uh, you see it in poetry, um, in the Edward period as well, this this kind of wider access to, like, the um, what is Beth Berry calls it, the library of public information. And that included all sorts of things, including information about cultural and, and literary practices and pursuits.
0: Mm-hmm. I have a, a sort of a question regarding this sort of um, social hierarchy or kind of hierarchy that you might. Witness within the tea room. So I think many of the listeners have no idea how to how to behave in that in that room. So I'm wondering, like, throughout your research, did you discover anything about the ways in which the um, behaviors of men and women change within the tea room? Um, also, like, can you tell us something about like what's 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 being done? Do they have conversations inside the tea room? And if they do have a conversation, what kind of conversation they were supposed to have. And it just give us a little bit more concrete picture of um, tea room and its influence into um, whether or not there was any influence into the social structure um, or any evidence of the differences between the tea room and outside world in Japan.
1: So sure, I think, yeah, that's mm-hmm. a, a really good idea. Uh, complex question and I'm gonna do my best to answer it. So um you know in I think one of the things that's useful to think about with talking about tea culture, certainly historically and I think this could be applied to the contemporary period as well, is that there's a distinction between like the theory or the ideal and then what actually happens in practice. And so you know in in theory and you'll you'll read this across many texts about tea culture there's this ideal that in the tea room everybody's equal, and uh, that you know the the famous thing that's usually quoted is you know samurai had to leave their swords at the door before they entered the tea room, right? And you have the nigiri this small door that you have to literally crawl through, so you're you're humbling yourself physically by by lowering your body as you enter into the tea room. Um, and the, the roji, the the garden that you enter, uh, you know, you a tea room through. So you you would walk along the roji, the garden path as you come up to the tea room. That's supposed to create a separation between like leaving the everyday world behind and all its cares and problems, and then you enter into the the tea room, and that is definitely the ideal i think like in practice you know people might have left their real world identities at the door but i dare say that when you're in a tea room people you're there with enoskye like everybody still knows that he's Ian Asker, right um, you know so i think that's to me this this like distinction is important to always maintain when and when we're reading like texts about tea culture historically and and tea generally tea masters talking about their philosophy of tea culture of course they're talking about the ideal and and what the Iemoto talks about and encourages people to do is the ideal and in terms of we don't really know what people talked about because um, like what we call records of tea gatherings or takaiki are records which generally say like you know there was a tea gathering held on this date at this place. You know the name of the tea room, uh, who the people were who were there, so who the host was, who the guests were. You're usually talking up to around up to five guests, and then which which utensils, which objects or dogu were used in the tea room, and it doesn't record anything else. So we don't have like records of those kind of like conversations. You know I can tell you today in in tea gatherings, what we generally talk about are like the conversation is structured around the objects, and you know, asking questions about the scroll, asking questions about the tea ball and who made it, offering comments about it as the as a guest, uh, asking about the tea and where it's from, uh, offering comments about its flavor and its taste, these kinds of things. But then again. You know, there's many times where we also have conversations about whatever we want to have a conversation about. You know, it, d- it depends who the people are who are there. Um, so I can't say that that didn't happen historically, uh, but we just don't know. And then in terms of the, um, like, idea of, like, a higher hierarchical, like, structure within a tea room, so I mean, architecturally there is a structure to the tea room where the tokonoma or the alcove, which is where the hanging scroll is placed, that's the highest point in the tea room. And so, for example, like when you're walking within a tea room, you're thinking about directionally, are you walking toward the highest place in the tea room, the tokonoma or away from it? In the Urasenke School of Tea, we we enter the tea room and cross each tatami border with our right foot first as we're walking higher up in the tea room, as we're walking away from the tokonoma and leaving the tea room, it's the opposite. We cross with our left and then we exit with our left as like an example of how that directional hierarchy functions. And then the first guest who's the most important, that's the most important guest position. They, They are the person who interacts with the host and has all of the conversation and leads the conversation on behalf of the other guests they should be the most experienced uh, tea practitioner of among the guests, but many times that may not be the case. And it may be someone who uh, people want to honor for some reason, or they have an important position in society, and therefore they are given the honor of being the first guest. That person sits in the highest the highest place in the tea room. So closest to the dogma, the alcove. Um, so all of that is important. And then when we look at um, like the seating of women within Edo period tea gatherings and the ones where I have like specific records of them where there's that like Chakaiki record of a tea gathering where women's names are listed, Um, in general women are like seated among male guests in no particular order but there are also times where you see the woman is seated lower than the husband so like maybe the man is second guest and she's third guest Um, and then in Toji no Tamato a woman's handbook uh the author of that talks about it and he says that there should be no hierarchy or distinction and that women shouldn't have to sit like lower in the seating order than their husbands so it's sort of a mixed bag is what I would say I didn't detect any like particular pattern and I think that it's I think there's not enough evidence to really say one way or the other I would suspect that it just depended on, like, you know, which tea master you would have asked what they thought and then, like, which person was hosting the tea gathering and who the guests were because sometimes a host will say, like, they might sort of indicate clearly what the order of the guests should be. Other times it should be arranged, like, between the guests themselves to figure out Mm -hmm. who's going to be first guest. So um,
0: my, my, my question is in, in this tea room and there's a first and second and third guest, but there is a host. And within the tea room, hierarchically hosts should be lower than the guest. That's what you're saying. Uh, it's just my question.
1: I don't know how to answer that. I mean, the host is making and serving tea to their guests. I'm not sure that that necessarily means that they're like lower uh, them or higher than them they you know they're they're an extremely important person in the tea gathering and and they have to be experienced enough at tea to host people and that was where like in the again coming back to ian records where i found like women acting as hosts including his young daughter and that was interesting because some people have said, oh, well, even if like there's women in records of tea gatherings from the Edo period, like they were just guests and they were never first guests or they were never host and, you know, they clearly were just kind of there but not doing anything. Um, and again, I was like, mm, that's not, in, in this case, like we're seeing examples where that's not the case. And, you know, he's like if what I argued in that case is if he gives 8-year-old, 10-year-old daughter is host is the host for a tea gathering and then the guests that we see are like his male vassals. To me, that's a really like intimate thing that he's inviting them to and a sign of their connection to the family that he's saying I want you to come and be a guest and my young daughter is going to host the tea gathering. You can kind of see it like a dad, a proud dad showing off. All well. um, <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. But I think that actually mm-hmm. is a real honor for the men who are being invited to that tea mm-hmm. gathering. Um, yeah. And, yeah.
0: Yeah. Definitely. There's a complex sort of the social structure. I mean, it's probably derivative of the actual social structure. The Etnowski is at top of this food chain, and then everybody else is participating in this event. But it seems like. It, within a tea room, there's a flexibility enough to be able to say this person has a knowledge of how to practice tea, and that person has a you know cultural capital and can represent the whole ceremony. Yeah, uh, and, and that person can be a woman. Yeah.
1: Yes, exactly. And That's mm-hmm. what when I talk about this distinction between like the ideal and what happens in reality, that's what it should be. The ideal should be recognizing yes, the person who has the expertise and proficiency and capability to be first guest or to be host or to attend just as a guest as well um, because, you know, all guests should know their role, should know what's required and expected of them and how, you know, how to play their part in the, the whole, um, like, orchestra, if you like, of a tea gathering. And so, yeah, and, and you know, and you see tea masters like the author of a woman's handbook, saying there is no reason that women can't do this. And then the people writing the sections on tea and edification guides saying the same thing, saying you might be invited to a tea gathering someday. It would be good if you know what to do and how to appropriately be a guest for thick tea, or how to be a host for thin tea. And this is something women should learn and encouraging them to do it. So, you know, there might have been people at the same time who said, No, or if a woman's in the tea room she always has to be placed lower than men in the tea room then there were people who who thought the opposite so I, I don't think I guess I'm hedging my bets a little bit because I don't think that it was like that everybody thought the same way about this and also you know there isn't like an overwhelming body of evidence one way or the other I would say though that most of the evidence points toward more of the flexibility Side and more of the the side of the author of Toji no Tamoto or a woman's handbook, who said, like, there should be no distinction and women can be in the tea room and in any position within the tea room.
0: Yeah. So you anticipated my uh, next question about this Toji no Tamoto. I mean, the, first of all, I think there are uh, the translation of Toji no Tamoto as a woman's handbook. I'm pretty sure you had a lot of process between these two. Uh, <laughs> I think there's between these two phrases, I think you went through a lot um uh, reflections and, and, and consultation with the supervisors and all these things. So if you could share a little bit of that, but also precisely what you said, there's sort of a swing toward, even as a reader, there's a sense of this tojo, Toji no Tamoto as a revolutionary book that, made it to the desk of Iinaosuke e. and changed the course of tea. And, you know, it sounded like the sexual school still wants to actually pursue that image of radical change. But at the same time, there's a, a little bit of reservation toward that by saying that, no, this was just much more, you know, s- soft accommodation, um, changing narrative. Um, can you you don't have to ch- ch- you know choose either side, but can you share a little bit of your insight into this position of tojinotamoto and history of tea uh, yeah, culture? Yeah, I,
1: I really like uh, that phrase you just said, "soft accommodation." <laughs> um, I think that's a really nice way to describe it. Um, so, yeah, I I would definitely veer away from calling it like a revolutionary book. Uh, I think I feel similar about it to what I said about. Inausuke and again Inausuke was in the Sekishu school and it's sometimes some of the same scholars kind of talking about this idea that like oh you know because he had women there like it shows how exemplary Inausuke was or revolutionary he was and what I'm saying is no because we see that like it's a really good example of a pattern we see elsewhere and I, I would also say that it's not a revolutionary book in the sense that like it wasn't widely read and disseminated you know it was not um, published, it was a manuscript, and it circulated among, you know, a, a closed community of Sekishu school adherents, and was intentionally kept that way. Again, this idea of like limiting information and access to within each school, uh, in that case. So I'm not sure it was revolutionary in this in that sense. That it, you know, there's like there's three extant manuscript copies, um, and I'm not sure how widely read it was and also I feel like himself like in the introduction what the author says is that he's writing this book because women are already studying tea and he wants to make sure that they do so in like the correct way or following the true path um just kind of like summarizing there and so I think it's not revolutionary in that sense either that he's really acknowledging in 1721 like this is already happening and I'm just kind of putting it down on paper as to like how you know what kind of what adaptations do women need to make um what procedures you know should they be following and just like encouraging sort of a moral ethical framework around women's tea practice um but at the same time, like there isn't any other book that I found from the Edo period that was exclusively on tea practice for women. So it right. is really remarkable.
0: Remarkable, yeah. Sense. Yeah. Uh, so the person who's like writing is... Remarkable yeah.
1: rather than revolutionary. I'm not
0: Right, right. Yeah. It is a fascinating piece because it sounds like at one point it looks like the author is just responding to a bunch of questions that he's being asked, and he himself doesn't necessarily believe in what he's saying. But then at the same time, it's being received by Einaudi in and practice in a certain way that actually stands out, uh, even for the regular historian um, in in a field of Japanese studies. So it's 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 a really fascinating piece. And yeah, it's, a, it's definitely yeah. an
1: interesting. It's an interesting it's an interesting book and like you said it's sort of um it, it's actually hard in some ways to know where to place it into what and what to believe of what he himself is saying because as I describe in the book in the introduction he kind of sets up this whole thing of like somebody came to me and asked me these questions and so I decided to write a book and it's really hard to know uh how to receive all of that as well and then the, the title, you know, he gives this explanation that, that toji is a term for women, that tamoto is sleeve, but it also refers to something you have at hand because, like, you can use a kimono sleeve like you use a pocket in Western clothing. You can put stuff in it. And so that's where, you know, to your question, that's where I came up with this translation of the title as a woman's handbook because he specifically explains, like, it's a handbook for women and that sleeve is, sleeve, sleeve, meaning something you have at hand and I, I went, I guess I went with the spirit of his explanation of the title in my translation but you were right to say like I spent a while, like a long time thinking about this and how to translate it and for me also it was just really important to translate all the terms and titles into English in a way that made it readable to those without Japanese language fluency. Because I, like I think I said earlier, you know, I wasn't only trying to reach an academic audience. I was also trying to reach an audience of scholar, um, st- sorry, students of Japanese tea. And many students of Japanese tea culture outside Japan do not have like fluency or a high level of fluency in Japanese. And so I didn't want to keep using just like the Japanese titles of the books. And I felt like a literal translation um, using like sleeve for example, for
0: some of would be a bit like. You, <laughs> yeah, you play something else. Yeah, as well in English. And yeah, you're right. That it's just, but it's, it's I think that's the best translation um, that I could think of as well. That it's, what is it? And it is the handbook. And also the whole story about the sleep, you know, sleep can be used as a pocket and something that you hold in your hand. That is the handbook. And I think, but I also could feel that there had to be uh, a lot of struggles <laughs> between yes. those Yeah, I, mean, I think there's two, like a yeah. whole
1: footnote in there explaining the translation yeah. of the title. So, yeah, when you have to have a footnote to explain why you translated a title a certain way, it's definitely a sign that, that you thought about it for a while. Yeah.
0: Another historical material that you provide in this book that really, really stood out to me is this uh, Sugoroku, you know, the game. And then the beautiful pictures of it in the middle of the book and i highly recommend the listeners to actually just go to this section and see these uh, materials but isn't it quite unusual in i don't know his history book on tea that pays attention to this kind of so everyday toys for entertainment for women uh, woman first of all and was there any response from, you know, the Iemoto or tea masters of major schools today or or even in the past? Because it seems like this is a clear evidence that, you know, the n- normative ordinarily discussions about the successful life for a woman is to actually practice tea and have a knowledge of tea. Um, that seems to be huge historical evidence that that this you know the genteel femininity element of tea culture was really dominant in uh, Japanese culture back then.
1: Uh huh. Yeah, I have to say I really love the sugoroku as well, and I was so excited when I found them because just like that, I was like, this is like a really interesting source and and a really clear example um, that that this was yeah part of like a, a picture of um, you know, important knowledge for women and and part of like a whole package of knowledge and skills that women were being encouraged to acquire in order to be successful. And um, yeah, so yeah, for me, it was uh, Suzanne Formanek has a chapter in a book um, that I am now, of course, blanking on the, the title, but it's it cited in in the footnotes and everything. Um, and it was, I remember, I think it was it was, I don't think it was as an undergrad, I think it was as a grad student reading her chapter on Sugoroku as texts for looking at women's lives in the Edo period. And I just remember being blown away by it. And I, I loved it. And it was one of those, you know, pieces of scholarship that I like came back to it a, a time and time again for its its insights really. And so that made me think like, oh, I wonder if I, you know, I should at least have a look and see if there's any Sugoroku that would be relevant, that would have um, like a, an image or a square on the game about tea. Uh, and then, yeah, then I was able to find them. Um, and again, that was while I was at Nichibunken, and it was the um, Edo Tokyo Museum were really helpful. In Tokyo, they hold a number of Subaroku, and I was able to, I think I was a professor in Osaka, gave me like a catalog from the museum that he had and I was able to look through that and see that there were some that had tea. So then when I went there I was, you know, prepared and like I, you know, in the catalog the numbers 81 and 102 or whatever it was, and they were able to show them to me and, and give me the images. And I found a few more at um some of the libraries in Tokyo. I do remember trying the Diet Library, the NDL, and they were uh, unsurprisingly a little bit difficult and didn't want to just bring up the for me to look at. Um, But I think the the branch library in Hiro I remember were great and they let me look at some. um, And I always wanted to, like, look for more and see if there were more, but it was kind of, you know, it's always that thing of, like, how, you know, you you can just do, like, keep endlessly diving for sources and trying to find things. But, um, you know, I was excited by the ones I found and I thought they contributed again to this the story and, like, this kind of pattern and this picture that I was trying to paint. Um, mm. and and yeah, but they're it's, really yeah, it beautifully
0: songs. matches your description of genteel femininity as one of the main components of tea practice. And this toy, you know, it's it's a kind of entertainment piece for, but it's it's not really, a, you know, toy, toy, but it's also like a kind of uh, ordinary narrative about what the life should be. And so it's a little bit instructive material. And Sugoroku is a little bit, uh, you know strange category it's almost like playing monopoly uh with a little bit of moral teaching (laughs) i would would encourage
1: anyone interested in them to read suzanne Formanek's chapter i just checked um my notes so it's the chapter is in a book called written text visual text woodblock printed media in early modern japan um from 2005 And the whole chapter focuses on um, pictorial siguroku and this idea of like womanhood and what was being represented.
0: Yeah, fantastic, fantastic uh, work. And it's very beautiful just to look at. And this is the part that I definitely um, recommend listeners to check out in in this book. Now, we're getting closer to the end, but I still have to ask you this question. Um, You still practice tea. We, will, we I would like to hear um, sort of like what sustains that practice and what's appealing about tea practice and how would you recommend someone, some of us who are listening to this episode that are interested in practicing tea but sort of, uh, you know, they don't know where to start and how to start. Like how should we enter this world? And do you have any recommendation for practicing tea?
1: Sure. So I, yeah, I've been studying tea um, for quite a number of years now since I was 17, as I said, which is a while ago. And uh, for me, it's, um, it's just something that it's something I really love. I really enjoy. And obviously, you know, it's connected to my overall professional interest in Japanese studies and Japanese culture but it's uh, personally like a very satisfying practice for me um, and it is truly this path of like endless study as I said earlier that you can um, continue studying and learning new things all the time and it's also about um, it's about community and practice like with other people so I would say you know that some of my like strongest and closest friendships with people all over the world have been formed through tea practice and, and other people who are tea practitioners. And that one of the things I really enjoy about it is the fact that it is uh, it's an art form that involves interaction with other people. So you don't typically, like, practice tea on your own or, or you know, make tea, do a, a, a temi procedure for yourself. It's for other people and it's that interaction between people, and when you're um, when you're all like tea practitioners who sort of uh, have some level of experience, and you share the same language, and you can have like really involved discussions about certain things from that like sh- level of shared knowledge and shared language, that's really um, fun in in a word. Um, and like you know, the like a couple of years ago, you know, before the pandemic and we were travelling more, um, I remember going in the space of a couple of months, I went to one conference, uh, Asian Studies Conference in Mexico City and I went to a Japanese Studies Conference in Sofia, Bulgaria. And in both places I met up with um, the teacher and students in the Urasenke School of Tea there and went to a tea class uh, in Mexico City in a tea class in in Sofia. And they were people that, you know, I'd never met before. Um, but I was put in touch with them by other tea people I know who knew them. You know, and it was like so fun for me to be able to to like in this case, you know, meet up with two young women in Bulgaria who had also been studying tea for a number of years and sit there and, and make tea together and drink tea and kind of and and chat and connect with them. And the same with going to, we went to the the main class in Mexico City, um, uh, a friend who was also at the conference, who's also a tea practitioner and and scholar. And that was really great as well to kind of be able to enter that world and that space in different parts of the world. Um, And I think for everyone who studies tea, like people have different reasons. You know, for some people, it really is a spiritual practice connected to Zen Buddhism. For other people, it's more about, like, the aesthetics and the, the the art history and material culture side of things and, like, exploring that. Um, you know, for other people, it is that, like, interaction. You know, it can be multiple things for the same person. It can be different things for different people. Uh, I definitely think that, you know, um, if... You know, I think the main audience for this podcast is is scholars of Japanese studies, and I, I think it would uh, be really great for people to, you know, have a little bit more experience of tea culture. I've often have been a little, I guess, surprised or disappointed at times that people um, can be quite dismissive of it as sort of like a hobby or a a cultural practice, like not that's not really of like a high value. Um, and you know, I think it really it's been extremely important historically. In, if we're looking at Japanese culture, Japanese art history, um, the one of the main ways in terms of like patronage and consumption of art objects, particularly ceramics and lacquerware. And it's, you know, not just Inasuke, many other important historical figures, Oda, no, Oda Nobunaga, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, you know, have all been involved in tea practice, And uh, again, I think I mentioned Morgan Patelka's work earlier, like, you know, his scholarship, um, his book, Spectacular Accumulation, is a really great study of looking at how tea culture was used as a political tool and and particularly the objects like the tea containers and the tea bowls were used as political tools. And it's an important part of Japanese culture today as well. so you know there are there's branches of of tea schools all over the world. Like I said, in, in Mexico City, in Sofia, Bulgaria, all over North America, Australia, Europe. So it's definitely something that if people are interested, they can you know connect with a local tea school. And um, usually people who practice tea are very happy to you know accommodate new people or to like host demonstrations. I've done that a lot at mm-hmm. universities. Um, given lectures and demonstrations. More recently, doing it over Zoom, which is always an interesting way to do a tea demonstration. Um, but to you know to bring it into the, yeah, but to bring it into the classroom and and um, engage with students in classes on Japanese history or Japanese art history or Japanese religion and talk to them about tea culture and and show them something of the practice.
0: Yeah, so I think there's going to be a high number of the practicing. Uh, tea ceremony in Japanese studies conferences after the pandemic. And perhaps all the programs around the world should actually have at least one course in tea ceremony. And I hope uh, this episode contributed to that revolutionary movement. Um, yeah, thank you so much, Rebecca. Uh, since uh, we approached the end of the interview, I'd like to ask you about your plans for the future. Um, can you share us what you're working on right now or or, or any future agendas? Uh, on the table right now? Yeah, what
1: I've been working on and interested in the last couple of years is looking at the Meiji period and Westerners' uh, writings about tea culture and Westerners who were involved in practising tea culture. And I'm particularly looking at within the Meiji period pre the Book of Tea, which, of course, is Okakura Kakuzo's kind of landmark um, book that, you know, is is widely cited in in circulation today. So I'm looking at um, before that, so particularly the period of like the 1880s and 1890s, so when Westerners were really first like travelling to Japan extensively and and writing, what were they saying about tea culture? And then examples of uh, Westerners who were practising tea culture in Japan. So I have one journal article and a chapter for an edited book that are both like out you Know in, in the world at the moment, waiting for um, editorial review and peer review, etc. So, hopefully, see. they'll come out. Um, yeah,
0: and it will and become a, a part to... of the big, book in the future as well.
1: Maybe, yeah. I'll yeah. see if there's um, a second book on that, That um, maybe on that subject, maybe on, on something else. I've also been looking for a number of years at an Edo period, Nan Tagami Kikusha. Uh, who I have one article about, and I've been looking at her tea practice for a number of years and thinking about whether I might write a book about her. So, yeah, um, yeah I'm, I'm still it seems thinking like, about another book.
0: Yeah, it, you're absolutely right. The, you know, Senorikyu and Okakura uh, Kakuzo, those areas are so widely circulated to the point that they, most of us people, us even as specialists of Japanese studies, don't really know in between. And this book was one of these books that are, actually helped me understand what's missing from comprehensive historiography of the uh, tea culture. Um, so I'm pretty sure you have a lot <laughs> to explore and excavate and actually put into a written format. Um,
1: well, thank you. I really appreciate you saying that. That that means I fulfilled my aim. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think it's the beginning of many books to come. And so, um, you know, good luck for the forthcoming project. And also, thank you so much for talking to us about your book and your great insight to the practice of tea in a history of Japan, Rebecca.
1: Thank you very much, Takeshi.
0: And thank you, everyone. This was a disc- our discussion with Rebecca Corbett, who is the author of Cultivating Femininity, Woman, Tea Culture in Edo and Meiji Japan. See you next time.